What provokes the most passionate responses in you? Is it when people that you don't know and don't care all that much about do certain things? Or is it when the people that you know the best and care about the most do certain things? Well, the answer is, of course, self-evident. It is the words and actions of those who are dearest and closest to us that provoke in us the greatest joy, the greatest anger, and the most passionate action. Now, I want to be careful not to paint God as being reactionary the way we are. But I have to say, based on what God declares about himself, including in this book, that propensity in us to be most passionate about those that we care the most about is evidence of the image of God in us, corrupted though it may be. The most impassioned activity of God and his creation has to do with his relationship with those whom he has called out to be his treasured possession. In that great old hymn that we just sang, The Love of God, the chorus says, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. The third verse, which to me is one of the most eloquent and beautiful verses in all of all the hymns of the faith. Could we with ink the ocean fill where the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man ascribed by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That understanding of the boundless magnitude and power of God's love for His people pervades the Scriptures. But because of our sin, God's love has ramifications for us that are not always pleasant for us. And for those who oppress us, for those who, who oppress the people of God, His love has ramifications that are entirely unpleasant. In this passage, we'll talk about both. God's love is a fierce love. It's a jealous love. The bond that God miraculously creates between himself and us as his chosen people is something that God holds dear with an exceeding jealousy. He takes it very, very personally. And if you want to know how personally he takes it, take a closer look at what he did to his son in order to in order to bind you to himself and to make a people for his own possession. There are eight separate visions recorded in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7 through 6, verse 8. We're going to look at the first two this morning. First, the setting. According to verse 7, chapter 1, God gave these visions to Zechariah just about three months after he gave the call to Judah through the same prophet, saying, Return to me, that I may return to you. The audience is the same group of Judahites that had started to rebuild the temple 18 years earlier. After coming back from captivity in Babylon, with the permission of King Cyrus, the Persian king, to 
rebuild the temple. But they hadn't gotten very far. In fact, they hadn't gotten past the foundation because of the oppression and the resistance that they received from other people in the land. Zechariah describes all of these visions as the word of the Lord. This wasn't a bunch of random dreams that Zechariah had because he ate spicy food before he went to bed. This was God directly revealing things that Judah needed to know about God's plan, about his intention. An intention that would have a dramatic impact on them and that will have a dramatic impact on us. The heart of the first vision in verses 7 to 17 is a terrible and wonderful declaration from God about things that he has determined he will do. But before he reveals those intentions, he lays out what soldiers today would call a sit rep, a situation report from some of his soldiers. This is one of many occasions in both Testaments in which God kind of pulls back the curtain on things that are going on in the angelic realm. And there are many of these. One of the most well-known, of course, is when uh, in 2 Kings 6, when uh, Elisha and his servant are in the city, and the city is being encircled by the whole Syrian army, and they're after one man, Elisha, because he's been telling the king of Israel what the king of Syria has been saying in his bedroom. It's the world's greatest uh, surveillance system because he didn't even have to be in the bedroom to know what was going on. And so as the army encircled the city, Elisha's servant says, Alas, Master, you got any ideas (laughs) about what to do with this? And Elisha says to his servant, Fear not, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. At that point, I'm sure the servant thinks that Elisha's been picking the wrong mushrooms. And so Elisha prays again to God and he says, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the servant's eyes are opened and he looks and behold, the mountain is filled with horses and chariots of fire all about. And the servant realizes that the army of Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of armies, is is far greater than the army that was threatening them. Of course, the next thing that happened is Elisha prayed again and the whole army, the whole Syrian army was struck with blindness and he escorted them into the hands of the king of Israel. It's a great story. There are many accounts like this of angelic armies, of angelic battles, of angelic patrols. These are not isolated or unusual incidents, not at all. God's supernatural agents are acting all the time in his creation because God is acting all the time in his creation. And the reason that he is, is because he is exceedingly interested in what's going on with his people. Everything revolves around his relationship with his chosen people. God didn't create the universe to be some great cosmic wind-up toy that he could kick-start and then sit back and watch while it, it did its thing. There are some people who actually have that concept of God, but the reality is that God is very, very personally involved in the affairs of our lives all the time and at levels that we don't even see. The players in Zechariah's first vision, as well as I'm able to sort them out, and by the way, if you come up with a different playlist, don't sweat it. It's not crystal clear. First, the angelic patrol, which consists of three horsemen, 
the, the man, and Zechariah calls him a man because he looks like a man, but he's not a man. He's an angel. On the red horse is the commander of the patrol of three horsemen, and he's also the spokesman for that patrol. The man who is standing among the myrtle trees, I believe, is a, is a second person. And he's identified in verse 11 as the angel of Yahweh. Now, I would strongly encourage you sometime to, to do a study of the use of that phrase, the angel of Yahweh. I believe this is the pre-incarnate, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And then there's the angel, Zechariah says, the angel who was speaking with me. And, and my old prof from seminary on the Minor Prophets said that that angel is what he calls Zechariah's tour guide for these visions. And that, by the way, fits very nicely with what you see going on in Revelation. Because in Revelation, there are two entities speaking to, to John the Apostle in, as he's receiving these amazing visions, heavenly realities. One of them says, when he bows down to him, one of them says, don't bow down to me, I'm just a fellow servant. And the other one says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. And then he says, Jesus sent this angel to bear witness of the things that you need to know. So uh, this meshes very well with what's going on here. By the way, I mentioned this before. This book is like it's like a, a vortex for the unity of Scripture because it pulls all the way back in the Pentateuch and the prophets and it pulls all the way forward from the things that you find in Revelation. And it talks about all of those things. The fourth entity is... Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts. He's the one that everyone ends up listening to in this passage. <laughs> now, I won't attempt to assign significance to the colors of the horses or to the myrtle trees because the text doesn't assign any significance to them. I'm sorry, I know that disappoints some people. <laughs> I will say, of course, that, that the image of horsemen occurs a lot in prophecy, angelic horsemen, uh, both for judgment and for blessing. Okay. It's significant that uh, the report that the horsemen give back to the angel of Yahweh is that they have patrolled the earth and all is peaceful and quiet. But the word that's translated in the NASB for peaceful is not the Hebrew word for peace. It's the Hebrew word for sit. And what they're saying is all the earth is settled. It's sitting and it's undisturbed. That doesn't mean that all the earth is at peace, as God defines peace. Now, this would have been received as a very good report by this group of Judahites who had come back from exile in Babylon because they had spent 70 years in exile and they had spent the last 18 years in limbo waiting for anything to proceed because they were unable to continue with the rebuilding of the temple. But now the dust had settled for these returned exiles. And compared to the last 88 years, things were downright copacetic. They were finally getting a break from many decades of turmoil that had come to them as a painful outworking of God's punishment, his wrath at them because they had refused to listen to him. And just two months earlier, God had told them through the prophet Haggai that it was finally time to resume the, building of the, the rebuilding of the temple. So now they could get on with life, right? Didn't all this mean that things must be good 
in their relationship with God? Well, if you keep reading, you see that the answer, that actually the question that's posed to God next would lead us to realize that things are not yet good between God's people and God. The request in verse 12 is made by the angel of Yahweh to, the, to Yahweh of hosts. And he says, O Lord of hosts, how long? How long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? Now the first thing I want you to note about that prayer in this context is that a settled and undisturbed situation is not equal to well-being with God. And that's an important realization for Judah and for us. We often make the serious mistake of thinking that if our situation is comfortable, if things are going smoothly, if the dust has settled on conflicts in our lives for a time, that that somehow means that things are fine between us and God. But in reality, our situation is a lousy barometer of the quality of that relationship that absolutely determines our well-being. We saw last week that God said, return to me that I may return to you. When that happens, that's when we have well-being. That's when things are good between us and God. When our hearts and our lives are all about our relationship with Him. And that's our priority in all things. Now, think about this. At what points in Israel's history had they come to God in genuine faith and humility, acknowledging their utter dependence upon Him as the real source of their protection, of their provision, of their well-being? In other words... At what points in their history had their hearts returned to God? Had it been when things were going smoothly for them? If you look for that, you have trouble finding it. (laughs) Because that's not when their hearts were turned to Him in earnest. In fact, it was in the times when they could find little or no consolation at all in their situation. Right here in Zechariah 1.6 that we looked at last week, When was it that the generation of Judahites that preceded this one that he's talking to finally turned their hearts to God, humbly acknowledging that he had acted justly and rightly in his judgments against them instead of kicking against those judgments and crying out that God was being terrible? They came to that heart toward God after his words overtook them like one army overtakes another and pulls it away into captivity against their will. They came to that return of their hearts to God after their word had failed and his word had prevailed. And think about this. They turned their hearts to God when their situation was exactly the situation that they had been trying with all their might to avoid when they were in captivity in Babylon. How does that relate to us? Well, when is it that we consider things to be going as they should be? (laughs) Many of us spend our lives wishing away five-sevenths of every week so that we can get to the weekend and things will be as they should be, as we wish they always were. 
As vacation time approaches, we get more energetic and we get more optimistic. And when a persistent conflict with another person that's been hanging over our head for months or maybe even years is finally resolved, everything gets better. We're greatly relieved. In fact, suddenly we're less irritable with our spouses and with our children. We feel better and more optimistic all day. We sleep better at night. Our blood pressure creeps back down to normal. And we say, thank you, Lord, for fixing things. Finally, they're finally as they should be. But are they really? The answer to that question is entirely a function of what's going on in our relationship with God and with Him alone. There is a vast difference between being blessed and being comfortable. In fact, there's a very strong case to be made from Scripture that while we're still in this cursed world and in these fleshly tents, comfort is the greatest enemy of godliness. And that's because it is such a powerful enemy against our dependence upon God. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a comfort. There is a prosperity There is a blessed situation that does indeed correspond with well-being that proceeds from God. And that's exactly what God is about to promise to his people. That situation. So we'll get there shortly. In verse 12, so in verse 12, the angel of the Lord cries out to the Lord of hosts and he says, How long will you withhold compassion? And in verse 13, Zechariah says that the words of God's response are good and comforting words. But when you look at the next couple of verses, verses 14 and 15, it doesn't look all that comforting yet. God says, proclaim saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And if you look at many passages, that means his wrath is about to be poured out. And then he says, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry with my own people, they, those nations, furthered the disaster. First, what does it mean that God is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion? And how does that declaration by God impact this immediate context? Well, throughout the Old Testament, Zion is the name for the place that God calls my holy mountain. It's the place where he says, I will install my anointed, my king. It is the location from which the king in the line of David, the perfect one, will reign forever. Just look at Psalm 2. It talks about those, all of those things. Now, he puts the place for the people in the place here when he says, I'm jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. That, we do that all the time. We say, The Pentagon released a statement today that all troops would be removed from such and such a place by next month. Or Hollywood just keeps getting further and further away from any kind of connection with what's going on with the rest of us. We put the place for the person, and that's what that's what God is doing here. But I believe there's far more going on there than just a figure of speech when it comes to the references, the repeated references to the place. And we'll talk a lot about that as we proceed. But for now, suffice it to say that God is jealous for Jerusalem because he's jealous for his people whom he has brought back to Jerusalem. 
He was very angry with the forefathers of the generation that Zechariah is addressing because they rejected his word. They cast off his command to submit to him and to submit to Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument. They worshipped idols instead of the true God. So he had pulled them out of Jerusalem and taken them into captivity for 70 years. God judged his own people very painfully because he is jealous for them. How is it that his declaration of his jealousy for his people could be seen as good and comforting? Well, for one thing, he's about to reveal his intention to display his jealousy in a very different way than he has been doing, in a way that even his people will see as good and comforting. But even before we hear what that something is that God is going to do, we have great cause to find the declaration of his jealousy good. Because that declaration tells us that the painful and harsh judgment that God sometimes pours out upon his own people is not the act of a capricious, uncaring, calloused, unloving God who's just proving to everyone who's boss. God's judgment was the act of an all-powerful God who is exceedingly jealous for the people that he delivered from slavery to be his own possession. Why does God act with such terrifying fury at times when his people persist in faithlessness and spiritual adultery? It's because God's relationship with his people is a deeply personal matter to God. God is exceedingly jealous for us. In James 4, James is speaking to those whom he calls over and over, my brethren. He's talking to believers and he says, verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And the one who makes himself a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And then he says, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says, he jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. God redeems us so that we will be His in the most personal way that those words can be understood. So that we, then, who are His, who have been made the objects of His perfect and jealous love, will live as His agents, as ambassadors in a fallen and cursed world to draw other men and women and children into that same jealous love. He saved us to be His And to do good so that men would see who he is. He made us so that we would be his inheritance and he would be ours. The bride in Song of Solomon 6 verse 3 says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Those words connote possession. Does it offend you to think of a man possessing his wife or of a woman possessing her husband? Well, if it does, get used to it because that's how God presents the covenant of marriage. Because marriage is a picture of the union that he brings about between Christ and his church, between God and his own people. We have been bought by him and we belong to him. Being related by God Related to God by covenant is a deeply personal matter to him, and it must also be deeply personal to us. (laughs) 
Why does God get so angry when we turn our backs on Him to seek well-being in someone or something else? Well, married men, how would you feel if your wife told you that she had met another man and she was convinced that that man would love her and protect her and understand her and nurture her better than you ever had? Married women, how would you feel if your husband told you that he met a woman that he was convinced would love and respect and desire him more than you ever had. There are some in this room who know exactly what that feels like. Now take that feeling and amp it up about a thousand times and then make it perfectly pure. And then maybe you'll have a grasp of the intensity of God's jealous love for his people. And that same jealousy for his people, for his treasured inheritance makes it a deeply personal matter to him when others whom he has used to correct his people have overstepped. When they bring upon his people greater calamity than he assigned for them to bring. That's what verse 15 is about. And that's what the second vision is about in verses 18 to 21 that we'll look at momentarily. But This does not mean that kings like Nebuchadnezzar or Sennacherib before him that took Israel into captivity somehow eluded God's control over their actions. What it means is that they overstepped their assignment. They were too zealous and their zeal was not for God, it was for themselves. Nebuchadnezzar hired the most ruthless army of that era, the Chaldean army. Very seasoned, very brutal And he used them to invade Judah and Jerusalem, and they furthered the disaster well beyond what was necessary to to take God's people into captivity. But from God's perspective, Nebuchadnezzar's actions were entirely within his control, and he accomplished through them entirely what he set about to accomplish. Now, God's jealousy for his redeemed people had resulted in Judah's exile, it was now going to result in God's judgment against the prideful nations that he had used to bring about that exile. But there was yet another demonstration of his jealousy that was going to unfold according to this vision. In verses 16 and 17, God reveals that his jealous love for his people is going to be demonstrated in a very different way than he showed it to their fathers. (laughs) He says, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. A measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, and that's a picture of measuring the city so the people will know what they're getting. My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. In verse 16, God directly replies to the question that the angel of Yahweh posed to him in verse 12. How long, Lord, before you show your compassion to this people? And his answer is critically important. God's answer is, my compassion will come to you when I come to you. You want to know and to experience God's compassion? Then you have to know and experience God. 
We measure God's compassion by all kinds of things, and, and He has displayed it in history in many different ways. But God declares that the greatest outworking of His compassion toward us is the restoration of His presence with us. And that's true of all the attributes that belong to Him and proceed from Him, the things that define well-being for us as His children. It's a package deal. God didn't redeem us so that He could hand off to us some kind of uh, like portable fruit basket that was filled with His character and His attributes and then we could take it away someplace and He could watch while we enjoyed it without Him, without enjoying Him. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is not portable fruit. It's permanently attached to its source. Because it's not merely what God is like, it's who He is. God didn't redeem us to give us blessing and life. He redeemed us to be our blessing and to be our life. It's deeply personal to God. Psalm 16 Verses 1 and 2 in this psalm is David speaking, but he's speaking words that are attributed to Messiah himself. This is what God intends for us. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. A few verses later, he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Indeed, my her- the, the lines have fallen to me in In beautiful places, in good places, my heritage is beautiful to me. And then in verse 11, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forever. Where is joy? Where is pleasure? It comes with God. And then Psalm 73, of course, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on this earth. If those words don't mean anything to you, if they're sort of out there and confusing, I pray that you will not stop thinking about them until you understand them to the core of your soul because once you do, your life will never be the same because your life is relationship with God. There is no other. Life is relationship and fellowship and communion with a person. It's not a a belief system isolated somehow from that person. It is a relationship with a God who jealously desires those whom He has redeemed for Himself. The one and only way that we can truly experience the blessings that proceed from who God is is to experience the intimate, personal knowledge of God Himself. And so when the angel of Yahweh calls out to God and says, Lord, when will compassion come to your people? God's answer is, it's coming. It's coming when I return to my people with my compassion. (laughs) They'll get compassion. They'll get my compassion when they get me. That's when their situation will be beautiful. That's when they'll know overflowing prosperity. That's when they'll know true and abiding comfort. When I again 
dwell in their midst. By the way, when is our jealousy, godly jealousy? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about godly jealousy. And he says to the Corinthian believers, Paul says, I am jealous with the godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. When is our jealousy godly jealousy? When it's jealousy for God. When it's jealousy for the relationship between God and His people. That's when it is a godly jealousy, not when it's about us, when it's about Him. Other jealousy is sin. That's the first vision. The second one shorter. In Zechariah's second vision, Zechariah sees four horns and four craftsmen. God explains to him directly and through the angel who is guiding him through these visions that the horns represent four kingdoms that have scattered Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of discussion in the commentaries about what those four kingdoms are. If you go back to the exile of Israel, you would probably say it starts with Assyria. So then it's Assyria, it's Babylon, it's Media Persia, and maybe it's Greece. But they're not specifically identified. So there's some level of speculation trying to pin this down. In any case, God is resolving to judge the nations that scattered Judah. The imagery of the horns to symbolize powerful kings or kingdoms shows up in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. And you remember I said he, Zechariah goes back and he goes forward. And it shows up in Revelation 12, 13, and 17. But there's a nuance to the way the image of the horns is used here that we should not miss and the way it's used many times in the Old Testament. The word horn in this context is not the shofar. It's not the big horn that was blown, that was blasted to summon the troops for battle or more rightly in Numbers 10 to summon God to the battle because he's the one who determined the outcome. This is a different horn. This is the image of the horn of an animal that he uses as a weapon to defend his territory, to defend his own position within his herd or to defend the herd from intruders. In other words, the image, the picture that's being used here is of a man who, or a kingdom that is proudly asserting its power and status. In effect, the one who lifts up his own horn is saying, you want some of this? Come get it. One of the best passages to understand the use of this word is in Psalm 75. The psalmist lays out what happens to prideful men when God has his way with them. Verse 4 says, Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. Verse 7, the psalmist says, But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. And then in verse 10 he says, All the horns of the wicked... He will cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. It's not the man who lifts up his own horn. It's the man whose horn God lifts up, who is blessed. On the other side of that same image is a picture of one who has already been deeply humbled. In Job 16, Job is lamenting the grievous humiliation that he has suffered and the great pain that he has suffered at the hands of Satan 
but ultimately at the hands of God, whom Satan had to go to for permission to afflict Job. In chapter 16, verse 15, Job says, I have sewed sackcloth over my skin, and I have thrust my horn in the dust. If I was lifted up before, I'm not anymore. In this vision, God in Zechariah, God is revealing to Zechariah how he will work out his very great anger that he declared in verse 15 against the nations that furthered the disaster against his people, Judah. In the vision, Zechariah then also sees four craftsmen whom God says he is sending out to terrify those four nations and to cast down or throw down their horns. In 2 Kings 12, verse 11, and 2 Chronicles 24, verse 12, the craftsmen are the carpenters who were charged with repairing the temple under the reign of King Joash. And that would have been the last historical precedent that this group had for how that word played out. The carpenters who were charged with rebuilding, repairing the temple. Now, I suspect that God's use of this image at this point is a wonderful demonstration of irony and that it's very much connected with the rebuilding of the temple that God has just instructed his people to resume. For the last 18 years, the Judahite exiles had been back in Jerusalem, but they had not gotten past the laying of the foundation of the temple because the people in Jerusalem were nasty. (laughs) They were mean. They were powerful. Now, as the Judahites began once again to rebuild the temple at God's command, God declares through this vision that he's going to send out the angelic equivalent to carpenters and they will cut off and cast down the horns of the nations that had decimated Judah. I called this vision the carpenters' smackdown. For the returned exiles in Jerusalem, this had to be seen as a wonderful word from from God. It would be hard to find anyone on the face of the earth at that point that had been more humbled than this group of people had. But God declared to them through Zechariah that he was going to humble the exalted and he was going to lift up the humble. And that's one of the most prominent themes in all of Scripture. Read the Song of Hannah. Read the words of Mary to Elizabeth. Those who lift up their own horn, those who exalt themselves in the face of Almighty God will be brought low. They will be cast down. You can count on it. Those who humble themselves before God and those who have been humbled by God because of His jealous love for them will be lifted up. And you can count on that too. God's people by his design, are a humble and humbled people who delight in exalting him, not in exalting themselves. Jesus Christ suffered a humiliation greater than any man has ever suffered because of how far he was brought down for our sakes. And he suffered that humiliation in order that he might lift up out of the dust of death and darkness those who had been trodden down in this life and so that he might be the horn of their salvation. In 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 and 3, after God delivered David from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of King Saul who had been after him since he was a teenager, 
David cried out to God and he said, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And then he said, He is my shield and he is the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. If you have suffered at the hands of people who have cast God aside because they cannot bring themselves to bow down to him, if you find it hard to make sense of the injustices and the excesses that have been inflicted on you or on people that you love in this life, know this. God will humble the exalted and he will exalt the humble. But we must not forget that even we who are the redeemed of God are prone to lift up our own horns. In the same chapter in which James tells us in chapter 4 that God jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. He goes on to say this, verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Beloved, that should sound familiar. Return to me, and I will return to you. He goes on, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's not the normal Christian life. That's what the Christian should experience when he is committing spiritual adultery with the world, when he is putting one foot in the world and thinking that the other foot in God is sufficient. Because it's all God or it's nothing. There is no life that is a mixture of the two. And then he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. We do not have an unfeeling, uncaring, unloving God. The reality is as far from that as it can be. We have a God whose passion for his people makes every passion that we have seem tame by comparison. How can we ponder the torturous and humiliating death of his beloved son in our place? How can we ponder the separation that his son experienced from him after an eternity of fellowship and love and communion and for our sakes and come to any other conclusion about the nature of God's love? The love of, of the one true God is a fierce love. It is a jealous love. God bought himself, he bought us for himself at the greatest of all costs. And you can be assured that he will protect and he will guard his relationship with us with the same ferocity that a shepherd employs in defending his sheep against every predator. When we turn away from God, when we think that we can push him aside and go about our lives without Him as our life. When we exalt our word over His, when we seek fulfillment or security or love or any good thing in anyone or anything other than God, we can be assured that His gracious and absolute claim over our hearts and our lives as His people will prevail even if it hurts a lot. And beloved, 
that is our beautiful situation. Dear Father, we thank you. It's hard to even know how to begin to thank you for your love, your jealous love, your fierce love. How is it, Lord, how is it that you could look upon us, upon our rebellion, upon these enemies, these helpless, lost, sinful enemies who were lost and dead in sin and and determine to make us the objects of your exceedingly great and jealous love. How could that be? We cry out sometimes to you, Lord, and we say, Lord, why are you treating us this way? And we should be saying, how could it be that you would care enough about us to treat us this way? How could it be that you would love us enough to reach into our lives at the most detailed level of all of our relationships and all of our circumstances and use all of the things that are happening in our lives to conform us to the image of your Son that you might be glorified in us. How could that be? I pray, Father, that every person here will walk away today with it, at least with a more profound understanding of the fierceness of your love and that we would respond rightly to that knowledge. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ who made us the objects of your love. It's in his name we pray.